there needs to be an other career structure of people who do projects. And they actually, for them, they need to stay in the same domain for a long time because domain experience, domain and experience are two keywords here. What we're talking about is how do you build experience? Welcome to The Thinking Leader, brought to you by Red Team Thinking. Bad leaders react, good leaders plan, and great leaders think. Each week, you'll get new ideas and insights from business executives, military experts, and innovative thought leaders to help you lead more effectively and better navigate your complex world. Now, here are your hosts, best-selling business author and top-rated leadership speaker, Bryce Hoffman, and former RAF Wing Commander and Business Agility Coach, Marcus Dimbleby. Hello and welcome to the show. Marcus and I have a great guest today, Professor Bent Flubier of the University of Oxford and IT University of Copenhagen is one of the world's leading experts on power bias. You know how much we love to, to talk about biases here and he's got a new book out, How Big Things Get Done. So without further ado, welcome to the show, Ben. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you on the show. So you've, you've got a new book out, how big things get done. And I, I would submit that the subtitle could be and how they don't <laughs> as well. That, that, that is, is very true, you know, that is the problem with most uh, big projects and actually most projects period, because our conclusions, uh, we are surprised to find actually apply to small projects as well as big projects. And we make a big point out of this in the book that this is relevant to your everyday projects, you know, like, uh, like uh, renovating your kitchen writing a book like we did and all the way up to space exploration and building the tallest buildings in the world and the biggest IT systems and so on. But, you know, the conclusion is that when we look at the numbers and we, uh, we have good data, the best data set in the world is in the book. It actually turns out that vast majority of projects don't perform well and the vast majority are actually failures. That's very wow. interesting. So one question we are asking, why is that the case? We try to explain that, but we don't despair because there are also successes. So we, we spend just as much time in the book looking at the successes and also explaining uh, how do you make a project uh, a success and what can we all learn from that so we can make our own projects as, uh, successful. That's great. That's a, that's, a, that's a great way of approaching it. What's an example in your mind of a project that stands out as a really successful project and what made it? A success in your mind? Um, I want to mention to the Pixar movies as such, not, not any one particular Pixar movie, but all the movies. And this is what's so stunning. In more than a hundred years of Hollywood history, no studio has been able to do what Pixar has done, you know, do 20, 20 plus blockbusters in a row. It's usually hit and miss, and this is something everybody in Hollywood knows that, you know, like you, you win some and you lose some, and it's almost impossible to predict which movies are going to be successes and which not. A lot of people have thought certain movies would be blockbusters, and they weren't, and vice versa. A lot of people have thought this is nothing, and then this movie becomes a big blockbuster. Pixar uh, has found a way, and maybe we can get into what that is. Uh, we think it's really important. They found a way to do this over and over and over again and, and make a success every time. So that's the one example. The other example is uh, the U.S. architect or Canadian-American architect, Frank Gehry, uh, who, work, who works out of Los Angeles. 
and and he did the a lot of buildings, you know, but the one we pay most attention to in the book is the Guggenheim Museum uh, in Bilbao. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's stunning. And it was built on budget and on time. When you look at that, it's wow. so wild. It's so wild, <laughs> you know, it sits there in the center of Bilbao. And I'm saying, if you haven't been there, you've got to go there. You've got to go see that building. And the other building, which is considered the other great building of the last century is the Sydney Opera House. You have to see those two buildings. And the Guggenheim Bilbao, when you look at it, you will think, wow, this has gone like hundreds and hundred percent over budget. It's so wild, you know, and I'm sure it wasn't built uh, on time either. It was right. actually it was actually uh, built on time. Didn't even take that long. Uh, and uh, it was built slightly under budget. This is completely unheard wow. of from, from, from what is called signature architecture like that, like wild, innovative architecture. And so we have picked the brains of both Pixar, you know, the, the people at Pixar and the people at Frank Gehry's studios, including uh, uh, Frank Gehry himself and including Pete Doctor and Ed Catmull at uh, Pixar, you know, to really understand in depth what is it that they do that they can succeed with such difficult things that, only, that the vast majority of people fail at. Absolutely. It is the majority, isn't it? Without a yeah. doubt. And you talked about under budget there. You know, most of these things are over budget, over time, and then under deliver. They fail to provide the benefits that are proposed that get the obviously the funding up front for these big projects normally. So I'm really fascinated to hear about this secret source that you, you've discovered with these two major you know success stories. Well, let's start with with Pixar. What what are some of the things? Because I mean, I. I I know that it's not that they are simply producing formulaic movies that that are, are you know change the characters but otherwise are identical to each other. What is the what is the secret or, or some of the secrets to their planning process that has made them so successful in your mind? You know, I can capture it in one word, and that's iterate. Hmm. You just do it over and over and over again. They don't rush to production they take a long time to iterate over and over what it is that they want to do in the beginning it uh, you know like like uh, pete doctor explained uh, to me um it might just be an idea you know like uh, somebody uh, like a grumpy old man is an example he gave us he wants right. to do a movie about a grumpy old man that's just an idea he wakes up at mm -hmm. night one night and he has this idea i should do a movie about a grumpy old man so he just write down one line grumpy old man and then, you know, uh, try to fill that in, maybe write one or two pages about uh, the idea, uh, unfolding it. And then, you know, uh, shipping that off to the colleagues at, uh, at Pixar. So they, they have different groups, including something they call the Brain Trust, which are the most experienced people uh, who are doing movies of their own and so on. And they will give feedback at every stage. So this is the first stage. You just have an idea on one or two pages and you get feedback on it. You're not you're not obliged to follow the feedback so it's 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 just free advice that you're getting uh, if you are the director or the one responsible for a film or an idea and um, then you get that feedback then you do another iteration so now you go to the second round and uh, maybe the the one or two pages turn into 10 or 12 pages and uh, then you get feedback on that after that, you start storyboarding. So now they start doing a few images, uh, still images, not like any film or anything, but they do sure. uh, images and, and storyboarding. And they say, this is what's going to happen here of the different scenes and so on. So very rough layout. And uh, so that's the third round. Then they get feedback on that. 
eventually they start actually taking pictures of the images and, and string them together so they can mm -hmm. start rolling them. It's not a film. It's just like you're running a lot of stills right after each other. So it's beginning to kind of simulate. That's the other <clears> keyword. Iterate and simulate, you know. Uh, that's how they do it. So they're actually simulating the film in more and more detail. Uh, and this is a process that uh, typically takes a couple of years. So they don't even start, you know, until they've been doing this for a couple of years. And this is planning, you know, this is not doing, this is planning. This is what we call planning. Isn't it funny when you break that down, that goes back to the principles of what we look at today of agile project management, of the test and learn experimentation. And what you're talking about, simulation is running pilots, taking that feedback and then iterating, which is that key first word. Exactly. So this is the principles we're all supposed to do project management too, but clearly it's not happening outside of some of these, no. And it's so important. And the people who understand this, they are the ones who are successful. They understand that it's about experience because that is what this, all this iteration uh, is about developing experience that you start understanding what it is that you're doing. And, and Pixar will actually go through eight, nine rounds like this with increasing detail. And only then does the shooting, right. only, the, only then do the real animation start, you know, with the <clears> real animation, the, the expensive computers and getting the expensive actors in that are go going to do the voiceovers and getting the expensive composers in that are going to do the scores and so on. That's all after after all this detailed planning. That's how Pixar does it. And it's very interesting. When you study Frank Gehry, he does it the same way. So the way a building is done at Gary Partners is the same way a movie is done at Pixar. It's, it's mm -hmm. striking. Wow. Well, be, before we get into Frank Gehry, because I'm so I'm 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 so fascinated. This there's two things that that occurred to me as you were describing the Pixar process. One thing that they're doing, and one thing that they're not doing. And just to 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 build on the iteration element, when you were describing that, Marcus was thinking about Agile. I was thinking about the marshmallow test, which I'm sure you're, you 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 you're familiar with. Where yeah. uh, for those who aren't, it's 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 a great learning technique where you give a group. A, a bunch of marshmallows and a bunch of uh, toothpicks and ask them to build a tower to a certain height. And the thing that's so interesting about the marshmallow test is that kindergartners outperform CEOs and, and even in some cases, structural engineers in how high they're able to build and how quickly. And, and the reason why, based on the research I've read on it, is because what kindergartners do is iterate. They have no idea how to build a tower. So they start putting it together and it falls over and then they they pick it up and they they do something different and they're learning from what didn't work and ultimately they get a pretty tall tower whereas if you take three CEOs and put them together they they sit and sketch out a plan and they you know they come up with their beautiful tower and engineers will do the same thing and then they get it you know up to a certain height and it tips over and now they go back and they're they're erasing their plan and stuff, whereas the kindergartners are just iterating. So that's one thing that I, that I thought is interesting is it's we know when we're, we're when we're five years old, we know how to do this. We just get it. We get it beaten out of us proverb, proverbially, uh, I think, as we get older. And the other thing is what they're not doing, which is they're not satisfying. They're not simply coming up with a good idea, saying that's a great idea. Let's make a movie about this, which is what I think ninety percent of Hollywood studios do. I mean, yeah. the, the ridiculous movies that you see coming out today, you can just tell that their entire origin was a group of, of of guys sitting around in a boardroom, and somebody said, "Hey, you know, we should make a you know a Barbie movie." And that great, okay, let's make a you know, and and that's that sort of thing. And so they're they're doing what we all know how to do, I think, intuitively. 
which is iterate and learn from our experiences, and they're not satisficing, which is the default decision-making method that most organizations use. And I wrote down building the foundations. As you said, Ben, before they invest in the expensive stuff and bring in the producers and the directors, they've already built the foundations that are going to make it a stable project. And as Bryce yep. alluded to, that's what so many people fail to do. And this will hopefully tie nicely to the next bit on the Guggenheim. But, you know, that, that time taken up front to really test, learn, experiment and have a solid platform to step off from is so crucial. And we don't. It goes back to that satisfying point. We're so quick to deliver, so quick to be seen to be getting the results that we fail to create that foundation. And then the whole tower comes crashing down pretty quickly into that project management cycle. Why do you think we, we stop iterating as a, as a default behavior? Um, I actually think that we are hardwired uh, to jump into things, you know, like to just get going. You know, it sounds mm -hmm. sensible, you yeah. know, and, and this is the way most projects start. They just gra grab onto some idea, like you said, like, let's do a Barbie movie. Yeah, great. Everybody around the table agrees. And then off you go into the woods. And, uh, and uh, as I said, I think we are hardwired like that. Uh, and uh, it's well documented in behavioral science, you know, availability bias that we will actually yeah. go with the first thing that's available to our yeah. brain. And uh, this might be this might actually be good from, uh, you know, an evolutionary point of view uh, from nature's point of view that that evolution gets a lot of experiments going when people run off in wild uh, in all directions and just start <laughs> things, you know. Yeah. And it doesn't matter that there's a lot of waste, you know, in the overall picture. I mean, nature is very wasteful when you look at things like that <laughs> uh, with the experiments that's going on. But of course, that doesn't mean that it's rational for us as individuals. It might be good uh, for the, the gene pool, but it might not be good for us as individuals mm -hmm. or for our individual organization or for our individual society, you know, when you look at that. And uh, and I actually think it is. I mean, if you look at making Hollywood movies on that basis by just rushing into things or big big uh, projects in general, it's a terrible idea. That's that I can tell you that my data document this to the hills. We have something called the Iron Law of project management, and it's it's what you talked about, Marcus, earlier. It's over budget, <laughs> over time under benefits over and over again. That is the general pattern, and it's it's yeah. it's very strong, and, and that includes scientifically, statistically strong. It's just something you can't deny that it's there. It's there. And, uh, and this is because of these behavioral biases. And what you want to do if you want to get beyond it is you want to de-bias. You want to get beyond those biases. You don't want to be subject to availability bias. You don't want to uh, be subject to this rushing in and escalation of commitment and, and, and all these different names, the biases that make us do things that way are called. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the, the iron law gets back to something that, that is how I, how I first became familiar with your work. And it's something that, that I, I think is so important. And we see so often with, with, with organizations we work with, which is what you term political bias. And, and most people hear that and, and say, oh, it means like a bias towards one political party or not. But that's not what it means at all. Can you, can you explain what political bias is and how it affects or informs the iron law? Yeah, and, uh, and and you're right. It has nothing to do with uh, political bias as it's normally understood that you're biased for one party or the other or one political <clears throat> position or the other. And, and actually, that's why I've started calling it power bias instead of political bias. Ah, I like that it, better. It's, it, yeah. it's, it's to try to avoid that misunderstanding, which I see happening a lot. Yeah. So power bias uh, is an additional bias on top of cognitive bias. Cognitive bias is psychological biases. 
power biases are, are the kind of biases when you see that you see when people are jockeying for position, for instance. So you're jockeying for position. You want to be number one or you want your project to get funded. So you do what it takes to make your project get funded. Usually that means making it look good on paper. So you underestimate the cost and the, and, and the schedule. It looks like it's going to be cheaper and faster than it is going to be. And you overestimate the benefits. So it looks like it's going to generate more positive things for people, whether that's you know, money or user experience or whatever, uh, then it's actually the case. And that is done deliberately. Cognitive biases are not deliberate. This is something we do unconsciously. And we can't help it because, like I said, we are hardwired. Political bias is different. We actually do it deliberately. And that's the main difference between uh, cognitive bias and, 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 and power bias. Right. Power bias we do in order to stay in power and to keep our position. So monument building is an example of power bias and, and a lot of, of mega projects, uh, uh, you know, qualify as, as monuments, uh, a lot of beautiful monuments, too, in my view, uh, that I wouldn't want to do without. There's also the thing about cooking the books is another uh, example of power bias. It's completely a classic, you know, within mega project uh, uh, decision making is that, uh, you know, the the actors, the pro proponents of a certain project will will cook the books to make the project look better than it is. So these are all power biases and they are something that comes on top of the cognitive biases. Do you think that the planning fallacy is triggered by power bias in many cases? If the, if it's pure planning fallacy it wouldn't be because pure mm -hmm. planning planning fallacy would be uh, you know uh, non-intentional. It's not okay. deliberate. Uh, so that's the definition of the planning fallacy. This is actually our optimism. Because we are, uh, originally, the planning fallacy was only about time. So it was, it was about underestimating the time that things take. So, you know, you are going to write your, let's say, your PhD, uh, your doctoral dissertation. You think it's going to take three years. It takes five. That's the planning fallacy. And that's not something you do deliberately. Uh, mm. Yeah. So, so I would say no. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the, that there can be things that look like the planning fallacy and it was actually generated deliberately by people uh, who uh, deliberately chose to misrepresent the schedule because they yeah. knew that they were more likely to get approval and funding if they made their project look like it could be done faster and cheaper than it actually can. Exactly. We see that so often when people are jockeying, don't they, for position. And if yeah. your project's up against someone else, and we talk about this, Bryce, don't we, about internal politics and careerism, and then you see the behaviors of project leads who are trying to get that sign off and right. they will, they will give these false metrics and these false hopes. And yeah. that's linked to the optimism that ties in with the power bias. And ultimately the planning fallacy underpins that, and, but the lens well, people go to, and then how quickly it starts to derail. And you see those KPIs and those metrics not being hit. And then it's a sunk cost fallacy of how far down the road we are, whether we stop these things or carry on. And the outcomes yeah. of that again, can be hugely detrimental. The other thing that I find interesting when you're describing the power bias, and I'm, I have to tell you, I, I, I'm so happy you changed the, the term because I, I, I reference your work often in, in, in my work and, and people immediately say, oh, it's political bias, you know, they, particularly in America where we're, where we're you know, basically in a, a, a de facto non-firing non civil war. Uh, people immediately think that it's, it's a statement about uh, one party or the other. And so yeah. power bias is a lot clearer. One of the things that I was thinking when you were describing it is I have a good friend who is a, uh, is a rocket scientist. He's a, he's a NASA scientist. Um, actually, he's, he's not a rocket scientist. He's a science who, scientist who works at NASA on other things. But one of the things that he told me is that 
every project, you know, we, we do science, space science, at least incredibly inefficiently in the United States because every administration changes the priorities. And so, you know, if a project to figure out how to create, you know, habitation on Mars is going to take six years to develop and four years into that, the administration changes and now we're going to go to the moon instead of Mars, that project just gets shelved. And all that work often is just is just thrown away until somebody comes back in and resurrects it. And he was telling me a story about when one of our we had an administration change where a good friend of his, the previous administration wanted to go to Mars. So so one of his colleagues was leading a team working on nanoparticles as construction materials for for a, a Mars base. And then a new administration came in and wanted to go to the moon. So his, he and his friend feverishly spent a weekend rewriting all of the papers so that it was about lunar dust instead of nanoparticles. <laughs> mm-hmm. And their project was able to continue because now it was about studying the effect of lunar dust as a, as a building material or something like that. And I, it, just, it just shows you, though, how people – it's almost like a survival skill, particularly mm-hmm. if you work in a large bureaucratic organization, right, that you, you learn how to spin – your work, if you're successful, to meet the expectations, the desires of the powers that be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's incredibly inefficient. It is, uh, but it is something that we come across in these big projects. And this is one thing that you mentioned, I, I note in particular, is that the the time horizon of the projects are often longer than the, tri- the time horizon of the politicians who are the ultimate decision makers, <laughs> at least if we're talking about public projects. But it's actually the same in yeah. the private sector. You know that many uh, C-suite members are, are going in and out at approximately the same cadence as politicians are going in and out of office. And actually, this should be emphasized that what we are talking about here applies both to the public sector and the private sector equally. So it's not about saying that the public sector is bad at this and the private sector is good. They are both equally bad at this. This is what our data show. You know, interesting. And and, and this thing you mentioned about the time horizon is really crucial. The fact that uh, the projects will last two, three times longer than, uh, you know, the decision makers are in power. And uh, that creates a certain instability for the projects that they that uh, you have new decision makers coming in and wanting to change the goals as you as you just illustrated uh, imminently with the example of changing the goal from going to Mars to going to the Moon. That's a ma- major change in the project, right? <laughs> Somewhat, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And but you're right; it happens in business too, you know. And 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 we see you see this all the time. You see people's pet projects at yeah. companies. That are that are not failing, that are that are right on track in some cases. But a new CEO comes in, and and now, well, that was that was his project. It's not my project. We're going to do something different. Exactly, exactly. It's it's interesting. It's like when you know my my first book, uh, American Icon, was about how Alan Mulally saved Ford Motor Company during the global financial crisis. And when Alan retired as CEO of Ford in 2014, you know all all the the media you know was was calling me up and saying you know can can Ford survive this transition. Um, will it still will it still be as successful with with a new CEO? And my answer was, it, it all depends on one thing, which is can his successor sit on his hands and resist the temptation to fix what isn't broken? Yeah, because when Alan was CEO president of Boeing before he came to Ford, he had everything going perfectly, and his successor wasn't satisfied with success because it wasn't his success, and yeah. he and he. Un, undid all of the perfectly crafted plans that Alan had formulated there. And then the, the, uh, 
the 787 became a, a total train wreck. Because they have yeah. to be seen to be doing something, don't they? That's the problem. Yeah, and sure enough, at Ford, first year or so that his successor, Mark Fields, did a, did, did a good job, you know, continuing things. But ultimately, the temptation to put your stamp on it becomes so strong that you start changing things that are underway, that already have tremendous investment behind them, that are on schedule or working. And for no other reason than the fact that you they weren't your idea. Exactly. So this, this to me, uh, you know, this brings up the the concept of continuity, and it's really mm. we f- we find that the organizations and project leaders who are successful at delivering projects, they actually make sure that their organization have continuity, that things don't change all the time, you know, that you don't get a change in mission and you don't get a change in what are the projects that we are focusing on, and I think it can move delivered that imminently uh, for Pixar, you know, and he yeah. stayed a long time uh, first under Steve Jobs. And this is, of course, a great combination to have to have Steve Jobs mm-hmm. as, as the, uh, you know, as the main shareholder and, uh, and and working with him, with his experience of this. Also, his experience from Apple was continuity. And you could see what happened when Apple started changing the CEOs in and out. Same yeah. thing, you know, it just fell apart. And it took jobs to uh, come back and and put it back together again. So this thing about continuity is incredibly important. Gary does the same and and he actually emphasizes working with the same partners decade after decade after decade across Mm -hmm. different projects. So it's not only on the individual project, it's also across projects. And he doesn't care whether it's somebody from Italy or Spain or whatever. They are the ones that he'll be working with if they are the best at uh, at doing whatever it is that needs to get done on on a specific design. That's so crucial. And you asked the question, like, why wouldn't you do that? Like, I, when you were saying that, I was like, it was almost like a head slap moment. Like, why wouldn't you work with the same partners if they were working? And yet, most organizations will go out to bid on every project over and over again, you know? Because a lot of that, I think, comes from, as you said, Ben, some of these things are long term, you know, years. And people don't want to be stuck around for years. They see that as career limiting. And we saw mm-hmm. that in the military. People want to be moving every two or three years for their perceived projected career trajectory. And yeah. therefore, if they're stuck on a project for five plus years, that doesn't look good. But to me, if you do that and succeed, then surely that's a bigger accolade to your credentials than it is to have left something that then derails because your name's on that. And I think that's definitely something we see in business and the military. That's a big uh, issue. And we are actually working actively with governments uh, around the world to correct for that. So our point is that the normal career structure in government is what you described, that, that people want to uh, they want to circulate. They don't want to stay too long in one position. And uh, you can you can do good projects with people like that. Yeah. So we have we have recommended you need to have two career structures. You you need a career structure for the generalist who's moving uh, between different mm-hmm, government mm-hmm. departments and offices, and that's okay. They need to understand uh, you know uh, different uh, parts and aspects of the government, and we need people who know how to do that. But there needs to be another career structure of people who do projects, and they actually for them they need to stay in the same domain for a long time because. Domain yeah. experience. Domain and experience are two keywords here. What we're talking about is how do you build experience? Like Brian, you, Bryce, you said it's a no-brainer. And uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and why 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 don't people do it? People don't do it. And we write about this in the book is that people ignore experience. They actually assume that 
everybody is experienced as everybody else. Now that's a fallacy. If I ever saw one, definitely though. right. But, yeah, but exactly. they, they, they think they think that contractors, the people who bid on projects, they think that they are replaceable. You can you can replace them. So one is just as good as the other. And now we just look no. at, at the bids and then we choose the cheapest bid. Huge yeah. mistake, you know, because. Yeah. In addition to price, you also need to look at quality. What's the quality of the stuff that people are going to deliver? And there is no correlation we find between, uh, you know, having a low bid and having a low end price. So price, so you actually mm -hmm. end up with a lot of problems then you, that you then need to solve and pay for. And the fact that you got a low bid doesn't guarantee anything regarding uh, the end price. And the way you, uh, you, you end up with a low end price and, and a budget that is under control is by hiring experienced people, experienced. preferably people yeah. who are experienced in working with you already from previous projects. That's the thing that I thought was so interesting. That's why I said it's like a head slap moment is as you work with people, if as long as it's, it's, it's a successful relationship, you're going to get better and better at working with those people over time. So by the time you, you know, Frank Gehry's team finishes one project, if he's bringing the same vendors back in on the next one, they're not starting from zero. They're not having to relearn how to work together. They're building on the experience that they've already learned. And, and, and as you were describing that, it, I know this is going to be a, a, a little controversial of a figure to hold up, but I mean, a huge part of why the U.S. space program was successful in, in the 20th century and got to the moon was because from the end of World War on, it was it, until we got to the moon, it was under the direction of, of Dr. Werner von Braun. And, you know, von Braun, I, controversial figure, but the point is, is that he, he, he led, he didn't lead the, the, the Mercury program and then they brought in someone else to lead the, the, the Apollo program. You know, he led program after program after program and he was building and his team was building on how they work together. And that's why they were able to do something which, you know, in hindsight, I mean, we couldn't do that today. He did. He did. His, you, you just described iteration yeah. right there. Yeah. yeah. And it was they were able to iterate because it was yeah. it was a continuity, too. Exactly. And, and it goes back to what you said, Ben, about, you know, swapping people out like they're these fungible carbon resource units, which we see so often when we're doing projects. You know, you know, if we've got a high performing team, whether it's sports, delivery, capability, military, a team of eight individuals, you lose one of those people and they swap out, the team's functionality will dip. It's proven. So if you do that at scale across these projects where and we see these with the big consultancies changing individuals in and out. And I think you nailed it. Even if they've got capability, they lack the experience. And there's nothing, nothing that beats experience of humans working together over time to build that trust, that understanding of each other. And it almost becomes an unspoken rule that we can work together without having to constantly question each other because we have that baseline of understanding of how we operate. And that only grows over time. So to dilute that or to remove pieces of that very effective tight-knit puzzle is going to cause a problem. And I think that's Coming, as, coming around to why we see so many of these projects failing, because that's what's happening. They're not having this continuity of domain and experience that you talk about. Mm -hmm. I agree. Good stuff. All right, let's take a short break. And, and when we come back, I want to, uh, to, to talk about how you can overcome some of this and how you can plan better and get big things done. Hey folks, Bryce here. If you're listening to this and you're liking what you're hearing and you're wondering, am I a red team thinker? We have an easy way for you to find out. Just go to 
the show notes, click on the link there to our free assessment to find out if you are a red team thinker and what you can do to think more effectively, to lead more effectively, and to make better decisions faster in your complex world. Like I said, the link is in the show notes, or you can simply go to our website, redteamthinking.com. Check it out. I can't wait to see how you score. Welcome back. Well, during the break, we were having an interesting conversation. Uh, our conversation, we didn't really have a break. We just kept talking. And, and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Bent was talking about the relationship between power bias and cognitive bias and, and his latest research on that. Ben, c- could you share that with uh, our listeners and viewers? Yeah, we talk a little bit about it in the book, but uh, it's just getting started. This is actually brand new research. And uh, Uh, that research shows that power bias amplifies cognitive bias. So somebody who has power bias and the more power bias, the more this is the case, will have more cognitive bias. So people in power, let's take an example, and and, uh, I think it sounds plausible, uh, and it's been documented that people in power are more optimistic than people who are not in power. Mm -hmm. So you have these people who are making these multi-billion dollar decisions on the types of projects that I'm studying. And they have more bias than anybody else, you know. So maybe that starts explaining something, you know. So Oh, it does. Oh, it, I, I, I can so believe that. <laughs> Doesn't it just? The more power you have, this basically means the higher up in the organization you go, the more cognitive bias there will be. The more availability bias there is, the more optimism bias there is, the more anchoring there is, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. That, that's, that, I mean, I... As soon as you said that, I mean, that, that, that to me is, is so apparent in so many organizations that I've studied and, and seen. I mean, it's so apparent in, in, in Russia right now in the, in the perse- prosecution of the war in Ukraine. I mean, you know, when you have an absolute authoritarian leader who, who has the ultimate power bias, it's, it's just living. It's, it's almost like, you know, they're swimming yeah. in, a, in a pool yeah. of cognitive bias. That's true. And it's, it's important to understand that this is a dynamic relationship. So we don't think about, okay, here's the basket with cognitive biases and over right. here is a basket with power bias and both, both are at work here. No, they actually interact in this uh, dynamic way that, that they amplify each other. And amplification, we know that amplification is the, is the key in complex systems, that you have interdependencies that are amplified once you start doing things and this that amplification is creating non-linearities that's the dif- that's the you know definition of a complex system that there are uh, non-linear interrelationships between the different elements in the systems and this dynamic relationship between power bias and cognitive bias actually amplifies that and that's why we see these extreme blowouts you know when you start talking about it in the way Nassim Nicholas Taleb you talks about it, you know which is like black swans this explains the black swans this is these are the mechanisms that are generating the black swans you get these fat tail distributions where you have huge cost overruns out on the right you have huge benefit shortfalls out on the left and you have again huge uh, schedule overruns out on the right it's generated by the mechanisms that we're talking about here. This dynamic interaction between power bias and cognitive bias. Oh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I mean, this is a point that I that I I make with all of all of our clients. This point I made, I think, in, in my last book as well, is that people think of cognitive biases as as affecting individuals, which they certainly do. But one of the points that I make is that organizations are collections of individuals, and so when you get you know ten thousand people 
together working on something with all of their cognitive biases, it becomes almost like an echo chamber for bias. It amplifies the bias. I, you know. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Because tie Good this point. into, you know, we look on the, the transformation side that the number one challenge to successful transformations is leadership. And then you talk about Ben, where if those leaders, the higher up they are, the bigger they are, the more power bias, that's affecting the cognitive bias. And as Bryce mentioned, then you then get in the group thing because we then have the fear factor and the lack of psychological safety. So the people who are looking up going, surely not, but they don't speak up and challenge. And therefore you've got this vicious circle mm-hmm. of the dissenters not being allowed to speak up, people fearful to challenge. And therefore the power bias is almost becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. until things go badly wrong and at scale. So that that really all now starts to bring together all of these pieces of information we're starting to see over the last few years of why these things are failing. And it's common sense when you look at it, when you, when you map this out, I'm, I'm drawing and scribbling here and it's just yeah. crystal clear. But, it, but isn't it funny why? that it's, it's common sense and so few people, oh, well, if, if we say it's common, common. sense, we have, then we have to conclude that not a lot of people have common Correct. sense. One of the things we say all the time is common sense is unfortunately very uncommon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's that's a good line. And I would say that the, the people we study uh, that are successful, they have lots of common sense. I actually like to call it practical wisdom because I think it's I wisdom. like that. Yeah, practical because wisdom. Because it's almost like common sense, you know, it sounds like too common. <laughs> yes. Though I, I do agree that it is common sense, but it actually, as you say, is not so common. So if we call it wisdom, maybe we can accept that wisdom is a more scarce commodity, you know, than, mm-hmm. uh, than uh, common sense. Uh, and uh, I do, I, I, I totally believe and I totally respect the wisdom of those people, you know, who know how to do yeah. this. It, it's actually awesome. It, I feel so privileged that I can go and sort of lift the, the, you know, the skull of these people and look into their brain and see how they're doing things. Uh, and uh, uh, it's amazing to see, especially the people who are successful. And uh, it's a real joy to study that, I would say. What is that secret source then? What it, what is that when you lift it, when you lift it up yeah what's in there well in a word it's wisdom but what is mm. wisdom then you know yeah. yeah wisdom is related to what we talked about earlier experience wisdom is really just somebody really experienced that's why you find in the old philosophies they often talk about older people as wise people so uh, mm-hmm. as I usually say in in my profession project management and project leadership gray hair is an asset you know yeah, yeah. it actually takes a long time to uh, build up the experience that allows you to be successful. It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, young people are worthless or anything like that. No. Uh, not, not at no, all. No. It just means that, uh, you know, it's not a coincidence that Gary didn't become super successful until he was, you know, in his early 60s. That's late. Yeah. You know, many architects stopped working. I didn't realize that. Time. that. Wow. He, has done, yeah. he has done his best work. He was locally successful, uh, you yeah. know, in Los Angeles. I actually, uh, I went to graduate school at UCLA. That's oh, how okay. I first got to know Gary, not as a person, but by by walking by these amazing buildings and who did that? And they say, right, oh, this, right. Look, this is this local. I lived in Venice, on Venice Beach. He was working in Santa Monica at that right. time. And, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, they said, this is a local guy called Frank Gary, and I started paying attention uh, to, to this. Uh, and uh, in the beginning, he was using cheap materials because his clients couldn't afford anything else and so on. He wasn't doing any uh, of the fancy stuff that he's doing now, but you can still see the genius there already. And then he had this epiphany that he wanted to start to do curved buildings. If you've seen his earlier buildings, they are very angular uh, and, and, and no curves. So he 
he started to try to do curves and failed at first and then got it because he got the right uh, technology to be able uh, to do it. And he spent all this time building up experience and wisdom. So experience comes from the word experience. And uh, this word is uh, a word that goes both into experiment and experience. So these ah, two things, yeah. experiment and experience are two sides of the same thing, actually. And if you look at the etymology of the, of the word, and we see it in that way, we, we talk about this in the book, and we talk about how important it is to experiment. You know, well, this, this is the, the iterations yeah. are experiments, really, right? You experiment, yeah. you you we say we have this slogan in the book we say it's just three words try learn again try, try learn, learn again. again and you just do it over and over that's what pixar uh, does it tries to describe what the movie is then it learns from that uh, description and then it do it it, it makes another okay. description and just go through that like i said eight nine loops eight nine iterations try learn again then you have something, you know, that you can start shooting. And that's what you need to do in order to succeed with projects. Gary builds his complete buildings are built on computers before he even goes out, even before anybody starts digging, you know, and, yeah. and doing anything on the site. Uh, the whole project has been built uh, on computers through digital simulation. And it gives a, an incredibly powerful tool uh, in order to, find conflicts in the building where things don't fit and so on. You, you can imagine that it's much cheaper to find out that the electricity and the plumbing doesn't match <laughs> on a computer than on site oh, with yes. the electrician and the plumber meet each other and they say, what are you doing here? I mean, this, this, is, this area is for electricity. And the plumber says, no, it's for plumbing. And you can see my plumbing is coming from over there. And the, and the electrician says, but my electricity is coming from over here. And then they conflict. This is completely common. If you've ever worked on a construction site, you know that this is a real problem. It happens all the time. So Gary can minimize that by simulating the building on a computer. So that's, that's again, this thing about building that kind of experiment on the computer and through all these experiments on yeah, the computer simulate. and the models, said it earlier. You, you, you get experience. So you know how to do this before you go out and start digging a hole in the ground. That's so interesting. One of the things that Ford did when I, in my previous life when I was a journalist and I covered Ford Motor Company that helped really increase their quality um, was bringing in manufacturing engineers to the design mm -hmm. process of vehicles. And they did exactly what you suggest, Ben. They, before they, before they even built a clay model of the car, there would be an engineer in the design team who, who, who was, who was not a mechanical engineer, but a production engineer. Yeah. And they would simulate, okay, if we're going to make the exhaust system look like this and curve and this interesting little S-curve underneath the body, this is going to be how it has to be put in on the assembly line. And it's going to require workers to like bend down really far to, to get that up there. That means that, you know, we're going to have to slow the assembly line down because otherwise that, you know, they'll strain their, I mean, they would get into that level and it would all be done on yeah. computer simulations. Yeah. And it dramatically improve their their quality and their productivity because they were working these things out and in 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 cyberspace and even they got to the point where they were putting workers in these uh, suits like you see in Pixar you know the actors use with the with all the dots on those virtual reality suits yeah. and having them simulate building assembling that piece of the car and then they'd study and they'd say no 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 someone can't do that 8 hours a day
and you've got wisdom and experience feeding that, haven't you? That's all. This is an equation. It really is. It's this iterate, simulate, experiment, bringing people with wisdom and experience to bolster that capability and then maintain that and keep repeating it as you go forward. Here's another interesting thing that I'm thinking about as you describe learning from experience. One of the, the, the architectural projects I, I've been fascinated about, and I studied a little bit for one of my books, is the Petronas Towers in Kuala Lumpur. And they, it, as I, you know, it's something that, as I understand, came in, you know, ahead of schedule and, 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 you know, hit all of its metrics. And one of the things that's interesting that they did is because there were two towers, they used two different uh, construction firms. Mm-hmm. Each tower was built by a different construction firm. But the, the way that the, the relationship worked was this. Each firm got a cash award for completing each floor first. But the condition was they had to share their what they changed with the other company. Wow. Mm-hmm. So That's literally, crazy. as the tower is being built, you have two rival companies competing against each other to get faster and better as they go up. But they have to share their experience with each other. And you created this incredible iterative experience as a result. Yeah, I, had, I hadn't heard that before, but that, that really is good thinking. And it reminds me of an example that we have in the book where this happened by chance. So it wasn't thought out the way you describe it, Bryce. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the Madrid Metro is one of the most successful and biggest metro expansions in the world ever. And, uh, and, and uh, delivered at a very low budget, uh, about half what metro usually costs per mile and uh, on time, really fast. And uh, the philosophy of the leadership in Madrid was that... Uh, we need to do it fast, so we'll get in a lot of tunnel boring machines, just so that the mm-hmm. disruption, uh, the, the you know, building a metro can often take eight, eight uh, ten years, even for just one line. So the sure the latest line in Copenhagen. That's optimistic. <laughs> yeah, in America, so, it takes a lot longer than that. <laughs> in, in Copenhagen, my other hometown, uh, you know, they 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 they, they built a, a metro ring around the whole city, and mm-hmm. it took ten years. Uh, Madrid decided we can't take that long uh, because it's uh, too much disruption for the city and for the people who are living nearby the construction mm-hmm. sites. So we're going to do it in half the time, four or five years instead. And uh, we'll do it by uh, getting a lot of tunnel boring teams in. So they got more teams than anybody had ever tried before at that time. You know, so they got eight teams into Madrid at the same time. Uh, and uh, and it turned out that the teams and the different machines started to compete. You know, they'd meet in the tapas bars at night and they would sort <laughs> yeah. of exchange notes, like how many meters yeah. did you do today? Uh, we did so-and-so. And then they would compare notes and 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 nobody wanted to be last. So they got this kind of Olympics and tunnel boring going underneath Ma- Madrid, you know, and they were doing this. And it significantly actually uh, improved the speed that nobody wanted to be last. So this kind of competition uh, can be a good thing. It's not often used. It's not often used. Right. Healthy competition. That's what was lacking, yeah. isn't it? It's yeah. this ability to have healthy conflict with each other yeah. and the competition yeah. to enable greatness. And I think that's so lacking in a lot of these projects and the way people work together today. What can yeah. people, you know, I, I'm sure a lot of people are hearing us talk about power bias and they're saying, well, that's all well and good. I, I completely see what they're talking about, but I'm I'm not at the top of the house. I, I'm a mid-level manager. 
yeah, or on the receiving end of this. Yeah. And and yeah. how can I not pl- fall victim to power bias when I want to keep my job? What is your advice for people like that? Yeah, so I, I get these questions all the time from my <laughs> students. Who, and my students are not like students who haven't done any work yet. They, these are mid-career people right. who, yeah. uh, uh, who are in exactly that situation. And uh, sometimes you can't do anything. That's the honest answer, you know, that, right. that, that that's just where you are in the organization and it's not up to you. Sometimes you can uh, alert the leadership to the issues that will follow if you actually uh, do uh, the things that they have decided under the influence of power bias. And uh, we also, my team and I, we do a lot of uh, awareness raising about these issues. Uh, like I talked about before, changing the career structure in government. We also talk about changing uh you know, the incentives here and and the possibilities for people to actually uh, raise the flag if there's something they consider going wrong. Uh, and also, I advise my students to do this because they might actually be blamed. It's not uncommon that you'll have leader, leaders making these kinds of mistakes under the influence of power bias, and then they will blame their staff later. We have lots of examples of that. And the staff actually need to protect themselves against that, or it can destroy their careers. So... The UK government, mm-hmm. for instance, have, have uh, you know, for people at a fairly high level, they have now, uh, you know, developed something that you 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 actually have to write. Uh, you 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 you're supposed to write a letter if you see something like this. You're supposed to write a letter, and so just so it's on the record, you know, that yeah. there's an issue. Call it out. So what we are working to do is to uh, raise awareness that these are issues and they need to be dealt with. Instead of before, they were just swept under the carpet. Nobody was dealing mm-hmm. with it, you know. So that that's the kind of progress we are trying to make. And I see it; it's happening. You know, it's there's much more awareness about these issues than there were just ten years ago, not to speak of twenty years ago. There is, and I think that's important. I I one thing that makes me, and maybe I'm a little jaded about this, is. You know, one of the things that we talk about in our work, as well as cognitive bias and behavioral bias, power bias is is groupthink. And, yeah. you know, it, it, it's been 50 years since Janice, you know, first made the world aware of the eight symptoms of groupthink. I remember my mother was an, an, an executive for, for the phone company in the United States back in the in the 70s and 80s. And I remember her coming home with with binders of like overcoming groupthink, you know, from classes she'd taken, you know, to try to de-bias, uh, you know, the decision-making in, in, in AT&T uh, over groupthink. But fast forward 50 years and, and, you know, we work with one of the successor companies to, to AT&T, groupthink is still as, as prevalent as it was back then. And so even being aware of it, people continue to fall victim to it. I think this is an important thing to understand that both cognitive biases and, and, and power bias is that they will always be there. It's not something, it's not like even at the individual level, but it also goes at the organizational and societal level is that it's not enough that you become aware that you have cognitive biases that will not make the biases go away. We are actually hardwired in here for these biases. So. Yeah. Uh, like Danny Kahneman writes in his uh, famous book, Thinking Fast and Slow, that, that he's very aware of these things, but he falls into the trap all the time you know, of, yeah, of, we all uh, of his own biases. And we all do, and we shouldn't expect otherwise. So this is not, if we think we can eliminate this, we're going to go terribly wrong. That, that would be my take, but we can mitigate it. Right. Yeah. And that's like a lot of the tools that, that, we, that we teach are designed to help people mitigate these rather than mm-hmm. thinking you can yeah. dispel them. And just being aware of them, I think, is important, as you say. 
I before we go, I I I know we're getting short on time here, but there's one other thing I want to talk about that we were talking about before we started that you said you you had some interesting insights on. So we're we're recording this in in Riverside, which is is a platform that a lot of people use for for podcast and 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 videocast. And uh, we were talking about how buggy Riverside is, and, but everyone uses it because it's it's got the best quality. It's the least buggy <laughs> of all of them. And and you said you had some interesting insights about why why things end up this way. And I'd love to hear you unpack that before we go. Well, well, the IT projects is one of the many project types that we study and in great depth. Uh, that's one reason I'm a professor at the IT University of Copenhagen, that IT is actually very difficult. And there's a real need to understand why IT is performing as badly as it is. We're starting 25 different project types and IT is the worst performing of all. Yeah. And we are building IT into more and more of what we're doing. I was talking to this really experienced senior uh, uh, engineer some time ago in the Netherlands. And he specializes in building uh, board tunnels, uh, multi-billion dollar board tunnels. And he said, he was crying on my shoulder saying, Benz, it took me 20 years to learn how to deliver a tunnel on budget and on time. And now we are back to square one because now they put so much IT in my tunnels. In form yeah. of signaling yeah. systems, safety systems, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. train management systems and so on, uh, or road management systems that, and we don't know how to manage the IT. So we are back to square one. We can't control how long it takes. We can't control how much it costs. That's IT. IT is not the only Riverside that is buggy. IT is buggy yeah. as such, yeah. you know, as we all experience. I mean, just think about what you're doing on your phone every right. day and how much friction there is enormous amount of friction and uh, we, are, we, are, we are trying to understand what is it about IT that makes it uh, so much worse than other project types and we have different ideas you know that, that it's just more difficult to make work first of all it's a younger project type IT hasn't yeah. been around yeah. buildings have been around for millennia and uh, we have 10,000 years of experience supposedly in building buildings they're still leaking you know and and, and drafting <laughs> we're lacking it wisdom aren't we well that's what i was wondering about we're lacking it wisdom. Yeah. also it is much less tangible you yeah, you and i we know what a building is we can imagine it it's very easy for us to picture we can even picture ourselves yeah. walking in and out of the building seeing it from different angles even on a computer yeah. simulation we can we can imagine all these things there's nothing equivalent with the computers right. you you can't imagine what a what a software program really looks like so it's very difficult to yeah. communicate and that just makes it difficult to achieve good results but i wonder how much of it is the experience thing because you know when you were talking about the role of experience and wisdom ben i was thinking about a quote from from bill gates that that uh, success is a poor teacher we learn a lot more from our mistakes than we do from our failures than we do from our successes. And it's so true. And, you know, I, in my previous life as a journalist, I covered Silicon Valley back in, in the, in the 1990s. And now I I'm back in California and not as a journalist, but I, I dabbling in as an investor, a venture capitalist, you know, have some exposure to, to the culture in, in the Valley today. And, you know, as you know, a lot of a lot of IT companies are started and run by very young people mm-hmm. who haven't, who don't have a lot of scar tissue um, from their failures. And a lot of times, companies are very successful out of the shoot, but when they run into problems, they don't have the managerial leadership skill set 
to deal with those problems effectively is what I've seen. And I just wonder if yeah. that might be part of it as, as well. well. One of their great sayings, isn't it, is move fast and break stuff. Yeah, and if well, you're doing that, you're not building those foundations that when you do hit the roadblocks, you've got that back back catalog of capability to overcome them. Yeah, well, the, the person who's first said that move fast and break stuff was Mark Zuckerberg. And the thing he yeah. broke was American democracy. So he also said that young people are just better. Young people are just better. Yeah. I think that uh, that might be true for, true for some things, you know, like, like for some kinds of programming yeah. and so on. And like I said before, this is not about old versus young. I think you need the whole yeah. palette, you know, of, of uh, people. And I, I do note that, yeah. uh, you know, people in the top positions at uh, Apple, for instance, have lots of gray hair. Yeah. And uh, they yeah. have been along for a long time. Apple really understands continuity. They understand the importance of experience and everything. And and uh, there's something similar about Amazon. Even Google, you know, has uh, has got lots mm -hmm. of that. So, so I think that it might be true for for startups, you know. And again, this is this thing that I talked about earlier. That might be good from an evolutionary point of view. You get lots of experiments going, and it causes a lot of bloodbaths, you know. Uh, but hey, mm -hmm. there's going to be some uh, there's going to be some successful companies, and that's also a power law, you know. With fat taste, the successes are in the in the tail, and that's what you're going after when you when you uh, invest in companies like that. But as the companies grow, I think it it becomes a different story, and and you do you do need much more of the kind of uh, experience that gives the kind of continuity that we've been talking about. Yeah. Otherwise, Excellent you advice. can't uh, to to really scale. Beyond beyond what Reed Hoffman calls bit scaling, which is like yeah. the first part, but when you mm -hmm. get into really really scaling at 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 at, at, the, at the high end of the curve, uh, you do need people uh, with a steady hand on the tiller. This is great stuff. So much uh, to think about, and so much more in your excellent book, "How Big Things Get Done." Highly recommended to folks. Ben, where where else can people learn more about you and your work? So I, I'm on LinkedIn. All my publications are listed on LinkedIn and, and on uh, the Social Science Research Network and other places on the Internet. So just Google my name and, 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 and you will quickly come to. I make sure to make all my publications available, you know, all my papers and so on. So You're very generous about that. And I highly recommend people, if you are interested in decision making like we are, follow Bent on, on LinkedIn. He, he has endless... Yeah fascinating, thoughtful post. He's one of the best people that I follow. Ben, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Awesome. Thank you. Good. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to The Thinking Leader. Check the show notes for more information about the topics covered in this episode there. You'll also find a link to our free assessment. Click on it right now to find out if you are a red team thinker with a red team culture.